Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. I'm Jess Miles, and in this episode, my co-presenter Richard Kemp speaks to Anna Sergi about her book, Chasing the Mafia, published by Bristol University Press and her experiences of one of the most powerful criminal organizations today. Rich, I've listened and this is a fascinating discussion. I'd love to hear what was most interesting about it from your point of view. Oh, thank you, Jess. I'm really glad that it it came off well, that the the conversation was so enjoyable for me as well. Good. So I'm glad for the listener, it it works very well. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... uh, I think that the um, so Anna Sergi, she's a she's a professor of criminology. She's been following the mafia for years. She she grew up in a community in 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 southern Italy in Calabria, where where the mafia was a was a huge thing. Where this mm-hmm. where this criminal organization comes from, and I one of the most interesting things I found about it was that she was going all across the world trying to to learn more about how mafia works, how its web kind of uh, expands across the world. And everywhere she went, she was finding a um, she was finding a connection to her locality, to her hometown that she wasn't ever expecting. She was expecting to kind of get there, figure out how the mafia works as a professional academic person with all this subject knowledge. And she every single time she kept on coming back to kind of like ghosts from her past, ghosts wow. from her hometown. So, real, um, so yeah. connections to her own personal experiences and her own childhood. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. That's a real circular kind of experience, isn't it? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Let's get into it. Um, for more information about the book, you can check out our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Thank you, Rich. From the Godfather trilogy and Goodfellas to the Sopranos and multiple video games, the myth of mafia continues to captivate readers and viewers. But what of the real mafia? How true are these stories, both for members of the organization and those outside? The Drangheta, the section of mafia from the Calabria region of Italy, is one of the wealthiest criminal organizations in the world. Considered the most powerful mafia in Italy, the Drangheta is a main focus for anti-mafia units both within Italy and internationally. In her new book, Chasing the Mafia, Anna Sergi, a professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex, presents her research on the wide-ranging inner workings of the Drangheta, an academic who specializes in organized crime and comparative criminal justice. Anna is a key communicator on this subject. In this particular book, Anna recounts her own connection with the Drangheta growing up in Calabria and having a journalist father who reported on the Drangheta for a living. Anna mixes academic research, investigative reporting, and memoir to take readers across the world from the United States and Canada to Australia, Argentina, and back to her home region of Calabria. Anna Sergi, thank you so much for coming on the Transforming Society podcast today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. Um, so I loved reading the book. I, uh, uh, it's a really great read. It's also just uh, incredibly well-written as well in, um, in, in such an interesting, interesting way that I've never seen an academic text be written before from from the point of, um, as I said there, from investigative reporting and academia and memoir. It was really fascinating all the way through. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I wanted to, to talk more about, uh, about that, about, about um, your decisions, about your background, because your, your background and proximity to the, to the subject is, is fascinating. Um, why did you decide to write this book? So the idea for this book um, was as a, as a birthday. Uh, it, it was mm-hmm. April 2015, and I was in Calabria, in the mountains of the Aspromonte, uh, mm-hmm. accompanying uh, two journalists, um, one, of which, one of whom was uh, an Australian journalist. They were doing a reporting, they were doing reporting in, uh, for a documentary that then later on aired in Australia on some Ndrangheta, alleged Ndrangheta member, Ndrangheta um, story that had the span from Melbourne to Calabria and back again into Melbourne. So I was there, I, I had just started my I'd finished my PhD uh, one year before. I, I had already written a paper on the Ndrangheta in Australia. 
uh, I was about to go to Australia for some further research. And there I was in, in this beautiful sunset moment mm-hmm. at the top of the mountain in, in with the valley of Aspromonte all around me, which is something that I've known since I, <laughs> I was born, mm-hmm. and trying to explain to these foreigners uh, what was the connection between that land and the Ndrangheta the way they knew him in right. Australia. And that was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. I went back home that night and I went to sleep at eight. I was knackered. I was destroyed. <laughs> I, you know, when you think too, too much and you try so hard to explain and to talk, oh, yeah. it, was, it was devastatingly difficult. So I decided, okay, I need, I need to explore this. I need to do this. And that night, well, the, the day after, actually, the, the night after, I wrote the prologue of the book. So the prologue of the book, which is there today has been mm-hmm. written in 2015 and then it's it sat there for like four years oh wow and i've always had this idea like I'm, I'm i know where this book is going i know what it is right. so i had it in my head and i wrote it very quickly when i when i managed to do it and it was basically the idea i have a bias as a Mm -hmm. researcher, which comes from the proximity to what I write about, which is also the reason why I want to write about it. Mm -hmm. So it's my motivation. It's it's something beyond just a research interest. It's something personal. So I need, I can't just write about it academically. I have to find a different voice. And that's basically what I did. Um, I tried to write in, I I write a lot in general. I mean, it's not just as an academic. I like writing. So um, the idea was, let me let me put all my different inner minds and inner um, voices together. The oh, one so of yeah. you know the academic who tries to unpack this, and the one of a Calabrian child and a Calabrian oh. woman eventually who tries to make sense of this complex reality. So it's a very long journey, this book, but it, one that you know profoundly changed me in the process. Wow, I had uh, really uh, quite a. Uh, um... So, so that the prologue that you wrote, um, that, that is still the uh, uh, the yes. prologue in this book today. Um, just that uh, that was the, that was the seed of what became the book. Yes. Um, is that so? You say that you do writing. Um, you you do a lot of writing yourself as well. So that's the kind of thing that you would have. If something yeah. if something is uh, in, in, uh, impactful on you, then you're going to go back and write it probably or write Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. So that was actually um, that that one was um, published in my I had a personal blog, which I use basically just for me to mm. keep together my things. Right. So I have it there with the pictures of the day. Right. And it's just something that I've always I've always known. It was the birth of something mm-hmm. in my head. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely um, it was definitely the seed. Yeah, it seems like quite a good uh, um, uh, process to go through as a researcher. It's uh, just um, kind of uh, document document your thoughts and your feelings on on yeah. something, so that one day it might be might be the uh, the, the catalyst for an entire book, which in this yeah. case it has been. Which is the yeah. whole idea from a methodological perspective of this book. This book is methodologically very strange. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> sure some of my colleagues who are a little bit more orthodox uh, right. in science methodology might have something to say about that. <laughs> so this, um, what you described is precisely how ethnography should work. Right. But then there are forms of ethnography, which is the one that I try to do in this book, among the other um, you know, data that I share, mm. um, which is... Uh, you know, self-ethnography and uh, the kind of idea that you write not in the moment necessarily, but in the attempt to recollect an experience, which is very different, of course, and not very precise from a factual perspective, mm-hmm. but it's also very rich in terms of um, emotions and in terms of, um, you know, sensorial background. So I think that's, that's probably, it's a combination of it all. So it was the ethnography yes. of the moment as I, in a sort of field diary, but at the same time, it's also me trying to go back to memories and things from the past later on uh, mm-hmm. in a sort of, um aware way which is you know also part of the methods for this book and uh, obviously what makes it what makes the all the voices very different yes one chapter to the other i think oh that's lovely thank you anna um and you said about uh, rich sensorial um images and memories and things i wanted to to get into that as well because there's uh, many instances in your book where you think back on your childhood and on your and your on your hometown with that huge majestic 
I mean, it was a wonderful description of the Aspradamonte mountain, um, yeah. which I then had to go look up for myself as well. And it really is as, uh, as incredible and gorgeous as you as you described. Um, yes. And uh, and, uh, and of course, there's um, there's your father reporting on the Drangheta as well. And I just wondered, um, could you tell us more about how you grew up, please? Yes, I grew up very normally. And I think I, it took me a while also to put into paper and probably some people will be disappointed like I, I didn't have <laughs> a, you know a violent or a particularly exciting childhood. Um, I grew up in, uh, in Calabria in the north of the region uh, which is considered to be less um, important from the Ndrangheta perspective so not as visible not as controlling um, and we we were there for various reasons, but my father and mother were both from the south of the region, as I explain thoroughly in the book. Mm-hmm. And especially my childhood has been um, okay, affected probably mm-hmm. way more from my summer period, holiday period than it was from the rest. So right. I spent my holidays in Aspromonte every year until I was probably 18 Mm -hmm. with my grandmother and father because you know when school ends uh, you know parents needs to drop you somewhere and fortunately (laughs) my grandparents could take us on Um, so I I was in Aspromonte from June to September every year of my life and life was very very different there I mean it's Mm -hmm. a it's a village of less than 1,000 people. Everything wow. is slow. Everything is is kind of soft and mold. And it's like you come, you, you have to obey the rules of, you know, the daily life the way mm-hmm. you don't know it, but everyone else around does. So you don't right. get up until a certain point. You are supposed to have lunch at a certain hour. You're not supposed (laughs) to go out until 5 p.m. because it's too hot. So you are going out for those two hours in the evening and just sit there and talk to people. So it was very slow and very kind of routine, routinized. Mm -hmm. And uh, while this was going on, all the Ndrangheta history was unfolding just outside our doorstep because obviously we were in the Aspromonte. So we only could hear different, you know, some bits bits and pieces of it but my parents have always been very good at shielding us from it Mm. I'm not sure it's a good thing or a bad thing I guess a (laughs) good thing overall but um, we never really had a conversation about why we had curfews for example why there was Mm. such um, an incredible panic whenever we would go certain places um mm-hmm. why my father was constantly traveling why what, what was it eventually that you know uh, was around our family then mm-hmm. there was the other village which was my father village this time where which i hated i still don't particularly <laughs> like it uh, but i'm starting to develop some attachment to it since i brought about it which is interesting oh, well, yes. um yes uh, and th- this was a, a different kind of calabria at all mm-hmm. completely even if it was just one hour away right so in, i grew up with these ideas of different calabria different plural calabria okay um and eventually it was all it was very very easy for me to compare compartmentalize so there was my life in the north when i went to school my friends mm-hmm. some of my friends never even went to the south of the region they didn't even know the capital <laughs> region. it was it, wow. it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing now that i think back on it um and then there were the holiday period and the villages uh, where i used to go which were kind of a different anna different place different area mm-hmm. um but growing up it was all about my my father i guess he comes out as a gigantic figure in my book um mm-hmm. together probably with my grandmother um mm-hmm. and that was because in my understanding of this phenomena he was crucial i mean he still is right, um, yes is probably you know the person that I I fear the most the judgment <laughs> for from and he can't read in English but he will read it whenever if I ever publish in Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, his, his travels, his constant constant being on the road, reporting uh, right. and you know g- catching up glimpses of conversation he had. It was a different time. It was the nineties, so the way. Right. He, he wrote was very different. There were no computers. He used to dictate things on the phone. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. On phone sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well. we stop in the middle of nowhere with him dictating things about dead people in, oh. in the square of a village. So it was very strange. Yeah. Was very normal. 
at the same time. Mm-hmm. Every, it was kind of normal. So I don't remember the first time I learned about the Ndrangheta. I've always known mm. uh, that there was this thing that killed people and did bad things and you kind of yeah. had to step away from it and you kind of didn't know what it was, but you kind of also knew what it was. So it was a very strange upbringing in the most normal and boring kind of life <laughs> with these things creeping in from all around the family, essentially. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Do you, um, um, with um, the yourself included and everybody else, just uh, everybody, everybody kind of doesn't know and also does know there's kind of ways, there's ways that I remember in, in the book, you were talking about how there are, there are kind of ways to protect yourself in yes. terms of like the knowledge that you have, or even just like the kind of like the blissful ignorance sometimes that you, that not necessarily you personally, but other people can yeah. have just to kind of keep themselves protected. Can you talk a bit about yeah, that? There is, a, there is this thing that I think I learned uh, growing up in the small village of the Aspromonte, which is called Santa Cristina d'Aspromonte. The name is longer than the village. <laughs> um, but uh, it's it's the very strange thing when... So the village, as I said, is less than 1,000 people. Everyone knows each other and everyone is mm-hmm. more or less at some point related to each other. Right, right. And uh, so it's one of those places, but notwithstanding the fact that everyone lives in close proximity with one another, especially mm-hmm. in um, family after family and generation after generation, they mm-hmm. still give them each other. They give each other the boy, mm-hmm. which is the, the, um, the you, the plural you right. in Italian, which is something that we only have in the South. Um, it's a way, it's a differential way to speak to someone you don't know. Right. It's like, um, yeah, a formal you which is very unusual because you wouldn't it's like you would speak this way with the person who lives next door to you and has lived mm. next door to you for the past four generations mm-hmm. so there is this sense of distance where we, yes we all know each other but at the same time we don't meddle into, into each other's life mm-hmm. so my grandmother used to be used to have this very very clear where yes of course you talk to family in an informal way mm-hmm. but then everyone else is there and it's kind of like a cohabitation situation where okay. you don't question things that are not pertaining you. Uh, yep. You comment and obviously you gossip. That's what you do, but only <laughs> in the strict, you know, uh, mm. element of family. Mm-hmm. So there is this, this idea that even if you are very close to one another, you still owe some sort of respect for what is private and what is, um, you know, um, someone else's business. Mm-hmm. And I think that can easily become what in the Anglo-Saxon world is known as omerta. Because it's basically the idea that you don't talk about things that don't pertain you. And mm-hmm. within this also means that you can fail to report and can fail to counter something mm-hmm. that is not right. Mm-hmm. But it's very unusual for someone to just, you know, confront someone else about even, you know, gossip about their family. There is this kind of discretion mm-hmm. uh, where you wouldn't, uh, even if you've known these people for all your life and your parents knew them and your grandparents knew them and everyone is married with one another. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a really strange perspective where you, you have to balance out your normality of life and the idea that your life is not going to change because social mobility, especially within certain villages and in certain periods it wasn't a thing uh, it yeah. was a thing for people from my generation but uh, not be before me mm-hmm. not that much at least even my parents are not you know um that is not the same as me of course in terms of possibilities and opportunities so that that's the way in a way you, you have to balance your uh, social kind of doomed life in that village <laughs> even if you don't like it wow. uh, you'll find you'll find a way and usually the way is to stay still in your family mm. contacts and everyone else is kind of like on their own which is an interesting anthropological exercise I guess. yeah and the idea i have of italian as well is um uh kind of just like you know big families and, and everybody has kind of a web uh, the, the families are web webbed webbed <laughs> together yes. to uh so so hearing you say that um everybody kind of doesn't get involved in what doesn't pertain to them Yes. Um, and so you, 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 you help your own immediate family, I suppose. Yes. yes um, but you don't necessarily get too involved outside of that. That's quite surprising yeah. to me. One, one of the things that surprised me the most when I was growing up and I started um, reading about the Nrangheta and, you know, studying it in a proper way um, was that if you, and I write about this in the book, if you 
um, if I were to look at my grandmother's village on uh, anti-mafia documents, um, I find two families mentioned as mafia families. These two families are the clan Papalia and the clan Madaffari. Now, mm -hmm. my grandfather's surname and my mother's surname is Papalia and my grandmother's surname is Madaffari. So <laughs> you can imagine my... I wouldn't say my surprise, but I'm kind of like, okay, so the, the two families of a village of less than 1,000 people that are identified as mafia families in that village are my families. Yeah. Because, I, especially because I know how the village works, you know, it's, right. it's, everyone is related to one another. So, mm -hmm. and obviously this is not true. Uh, mm -hmm. And it is not true because my not only my grandparents were far away from being mafia members, <laughs> But they were also, if I were to talk to them, they had some idea of who wasn't truly a good person, that's mm -hmm. what they called them. But it was very, very strange the way they would talk about them. It, it wasn't a family thing. It was, you know, yes, at some point we were related, third cousin, mm. fourth cousin, this kind of thing. But they weren't really having any conversations about this part of the family because that's just, you know, these people who live there, who cares? Mm -hmm. But there is a way where the village can protect itself, even if there is this uh, horrendous thing about the surname, which somehow mm -hmm. puts everyone together and mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately creates also a lot of what, what we call ascriptive ties. So ties you can't question, they are just right. you know, there. It's a family yeah. surname. But the way it's it's done is a little bit more clan-based in, in that sense, mm -hmm. in, in an anthropological sense, where your immediate family is not necessarily the whole of the surname family. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I had to identify. I had to ask myself, okay, how, how am I related to these people? Mm -hmm. And the, the distance is very, very, you know, is there. I know who this, I, I can identify, but I've never met him, them in my life in the village. Right, so, yeah. Or if I have, I've never even spoken to them. <laughs> so you can somehow separate yourself. Um, and yeah. I guess it, it's up to the individual person as well. And the individual mm -hmm. family, you know, um, experience overall. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Anna. Um, and the, uh, the actually, yeah, the closeness is something I wanted to get to as well. Um, just that could, because many times you describe your struggle with researching the Drangheta Drangetha, considering your own closeness. Um, at one point, you even receive an email from someone calling you um, a cop lover and a traitor. Um, and, uh, and, 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 through, and quite a few times through the book, you, you say about how you yearn for an emotional distance to approach this subject analytically, because of course you are an academic. So you want, to, you want, to, to, uh, you want the emotional distance to, to, to go to this subject and, and analytically, while also you need the emotional closeness to access those deep, sometimes dark uh, memories. Um, so yes. it, it left me wondering, just like, is this even possible? Um, I don't think it's possible. And that's the reason <laughs> for the book. Right. It's basically the idea that it's, it's kind of like I give up. I, that's, that's the way. So this book is meant to be my understanding of the subject uh, with my own peculiar bias. So mm -hmm. it's my um, being empowered by my own bias um, mm. and deciding, okay, so the kind of story and the kind of analysis I can do will always be, um, it, it will never be neutral. Mm -hmm. It can be neutral. Mm -hmm. So instead of fighting it, I just accept it. And uh, the nice. book you, you've seen, the book you, that came out, is, is meant to do precisely that, to show mm -hmm. that there is no way, like there is maybe in some other topics I research, which, you know, um, in, I do also have other topics of research where this doesn't happen. So I can, re I can do the difference. Sure. But there is this idea where, okay, when I, it comes to this, my strength, which mm -hmm. is my understanding of the, the phenomenon in a way that one might call intuitive mm -hmm. and then analytical, it's just biased. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more I, the more I think about it, the more this is my strength, and this mm -hmm. strength is also probably my weakness in a way because I, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, I can never be neutral. I can never be emotionless. I can never be detached from this. Uh, yeah. It's just not possible. It's, it's in every every day I receive news on everything, and then, then whenever there is a news, I have to look. I have to know what mm -hmm. it is. So 
it's borderline obsession sometimes when uh, trying <laughs> to understand what other people say, what other people think about mm. it, correct narratives the way I see them. So I don't know. I don't think it's possible. I think it's been the reason why I'm, I've been also very lucky in my research in terms of meeting people uh, and accessing, um, you know, different police forces and mm. getting the trust mm. of different authorities as well, which helped me immensely, especially in Australia and Canada. And the reason for that is because I, I'm not the usual academic on the topic. I don't switch off. I never switch off. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's always something that I can relate to at any mm-hmm. stage, any mm. part of Calabria, anything that is, you know, I, I need to dig deeper every single time yeah. there is something related to the Ndrangheta. So I think that's, it's just an admission, probably. It, it's not possible. Yeah. It's, and, yeah. uh, it probably shouldn't even be possible. I mean, we are not mm-hmm. robots, right? Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. academics. So. I suppose even if you are completely separate from the research, is there always going to be something going on in terms uh, in, in that area? I mean, in terms of it's still you, the author, deciding on what to present at the end. Exactly. So there is always a bias in social sciences anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This one is more prominent than others, I think. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, it might just be the kind of, uh, you know, it allows me to be even richer in the way I yeah. approach data. And I think that's the strength of the book, eventually. Uh, and overall, what I try to do in my research. Absolutely. I completely agree that it's a strength um, in that uh, it's, um, you've, you've been able to give us all this data that you found and uh, through through both through research and through interviewing people. And then also you're able to to dig back in everything that you knew um, growing up uh, in that area and to in, in a way it's kind of like a corroboration in some ways of just like um, sometimes I'm just like I was reading through the book kind of being like I wonder how Anna's gonna be able to what's she gonna say about this about you know the yeah. fact that she lived through uh, this you know either either close by or from a distance and yeah. um, and then you've got all this information from other people did it um, um, when you were interviewing others um, in in not just in in Calabria but also uh, uh, internationally did it did it make a difference? Do you think the fact that they knew that you had some sort of local connection? Absolutely, yes. I think uh, the first time I was in Australia, and I was absolutely clueless because sometimes I do <laughs> I do this as an exercise to go into the field not over prepared, mm-hmm. and I had that completely underestimated um, the power of my surname in Australia. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I knew, I know that my surname is linked to a mafia family, which, by the way, is not linked to me by my father's surname, but rather through my mom's surname, which is mm-hmm. very complicated. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I knew, obviously, it's one of those mafia clans that we all know about also in Italy. It's one of the prominent ones. But in Australia, and they are present in Australia, activities mm-hmm. of this clan. Mm. And I had completely underestimated the perceptions that Australian law enforcement and Australian media had of that clan, Mm. which for them was kind of like the Gambino family of New York. Mm -hmm. So it it became this this kind of um, the the one clan that everyone knew about. So Mm. when I go with my name and surname and the name Anna is also a family name for the clan. Okay. So it became like, who the hell are you now? So between <laughs> the suspicion and mm-hmm. the attraction mm-hmm. to the fact that I was this Calabrian researcher with a mafia surname researching mafia, I think it was a, a deflagration. Mm-hmm. And I received, I was, you know, I had so much access at the beginning of my research, also because I was the only one, I'm still the only one doing this research in Australia, uh, specifically. And Mm -hmm. the fact that I'm Calabrian and the fact that I can connect their mafia to the other real mafia down there Mm -hmm. in a way that is not just historical, not just criminological, but also all of the above, Mm -hmm. I think made a huge difference. I mean, the first time I was speaking about the the Ndrangheta in Australia, I remember it. He was, uh, he was in Adelaide and I was giving a presentation on the Drangheta history mm-hmm. and of migration and mobility to Australia. And I showed them a little village, which is very, very central to Australia mm-hmm. and very, very central to the book. Okay. Uh, this little village of 3,000 people that, and they would turn around and told me, oh my God, I never thought about this village this way. To me, it was some sort of Rio de Janeiro. It's like, mm. really? It's like, how did, <laughs> where, where is Google? Um, so it, was, it was a very strange perspective because they, they kind of saw me as some sort of unlocking knowledge 
yeah. that was already available, but mm-hmm. it couldn't quite be put together. So mm-hmm. that was really my role, apart from obviously negotiating um, mm-hmm. conversation. They ne- never gave me anything confidential. What right. we managed to do together, especially with the Australian police forces, bodies of them, mm-hmm. was to make order in some of the things they had and try and agree on language. How do yes. we talk about this topic in a way that makes sense to me in Calabria, in the history of Calabria, and to you in Australia, in the history of Australia? So that mm-hmm. was the, the whole collaboration. And I think it was, you know, it was beneficial on both sides, but definitely it was uh, eye-opening, completely eye-opening for me, uh, <laughs> which is, I, again, the reason why Australia is so prominent in the book. Yeah, yeah, it takes up many chapters, uh, your, your time in Australia. Yes. Um, yeah, and I can see I can see why through reading reading through. There's so much. There's so much um, that you that you you find out. And I love the fact that yeah, you you arrive in Australia not realizing that you're a key to a door that people don't know how to unlock. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's been that way. I mean, I had this conversation, which I think I read about in the book mm-hmm. with this lovely woman. It's like, but do you know about your surname? And it's like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> yes, but, you know, in my head, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was mm-hmm. just a mafia surname like many others. Sure. But no, in that, in that, in the history, in the public conscience and institutional conscience of Australia, mm. that surname is not just any mafia surname, it's the yes. mafia surname. So I had completely underestimated that. I didn't know. Uh, so obviously that kind of posed very important ethical questions as well, mm-hmm. which I'm still, you know, wondering about. Nothing, nothing. Oh, thanks, Anna. Um, yeah, uh, going through uh, going through your book and, and reading all the different stories that you either or, either knew or um, uh, found out about through your research, I couldn't believe how many places had connections to the Drangheta. It was amazing. Um, the mafia, they seem to operate somewhere between uh, how I was understanding it through your book, to somewhere between like a multinational business and a royal family. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> could you tell us more about how how it's organized and how they spread so far and so wide? Yeah. So I think that's uh, part of the, um, the book where uh, the, the academic effort has been uh, major in, in the sense that I've really tried to say something new. And it's not easy to say something new. Everything about mafia has been written like decades ago. Uh, we are not writing anything new, even if we try. Uh, but I think with Ndrangheta is peculiar because one thing is to look at their organization in Calabria, which obviously followed Calabrian evolution today. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Ndrangheta is not the same as it used to be 50 years ago because people are not the same. Mm-hmm. And the way in which it uh, spread around the world, and especially in Australia and in Canada, and partially the United States, which is very much a, a lot more um, linked to their core origin. So the Ndrangheta abroad is probably more Ndrangheta than the Ndrangheta in Calabria in a a recognizable way, because it does keep the family ties very much alive. Mm. It is about, you mentioned the royal family, it is very much, I call them dynasties, Mm -hmm. because they are dynasties. Mm -hmm. By dynasty, we mean a family business that goes on for generation and Mm -hmm. is led by powerful, charismatic figures. So we have some of the most of the history of the Ndrangheta abroad uh, is made up of family dynasties, success and their failures, because sometimes they do fail. Right. Um, and it, it is very much linked to a combination between the charismatic leader on one side uh, of the family, so the head of the family, and mm-hmm. his ability to, is always a him most of the time, even if there are shadow women, um, mm-hmm to keep in touch with family back home, which is uh, both something that any most Calabrian migrant would do, especially in Australia and in Canada, where migration happened in specific times. It's a long-standing migration. Right. Um, but at the same time, there is something a little bit more. It's about the identity of the criminal family. Mm-hmm. So the, the criminal family of Australia, the Ndrangheta family, the Ndrangheta dynasty of Australia, does not recognize themselves as the whole of the Ndrangheta. Their link is with, with their own family in Calabria. Mm-hmm. And then the family in Calabria recognizes itself within the structure of the Calabrian Ndrangheta. But right. the connection is not direct. There mm-hmm. is always this intermediary between the abroad dynasty and the Calabria dynasty, which is very much a family business. Mm-hmm. So that's why 
it is it is very very true what you say so the multinational capacity which is obviously linked to the fact that they are they're not that many so they can control what they do it mm-hmm. doesn't get lost and right. everyone is still insulated enough to make mistake without affecting others. Mm-hmm. If the mafia family of Australia decides to ship drugs from Italy, they will call their own their own relatives mm-hmm. in Italy and arrange that. Mm. But then in Australia, they will have their own associates, which are not Drangheta, are from wherever, mm-hmm. who will handle the criminal business. If something goes wrong in Australia, that doesn't affect the Calabrians. Mm-hmm. It affects the Australians. <laughs> so it, it, in a way, there is a, there is a system of intercommunication where success is somewhat shared, failure mm-hmm. is not. And at the same time, you can do it as many times as you want with as many businesses as you want. Mm-hmm. And the more you enter into issues and problems, the more you realize that this system can protect you. Mm-hmm. So if something goes wrong in Australia and... Uh, you might decide that it's good enough, it's good to call up on someone in Calabria and say, hey, we have an issue here. Someone is not behaving as they should. Can you send someone over? Mm-hmm. Because we need someone with, a, with gravitas, with authority, right. with legitimacy from Calabria. So there is a system, a troubleshooting system in place that protects everyone and protects the brand, I think, which is the most important thing in the Drangheta mm. to be recognized as part of the brand. Right. Yeah, but the autonomy is essential everyone yeah. is very autonomous to do whatever they want including you know misbehaving or failing in a way in right and so when so uh yeah and then so <laughs> you said that's very interesting about how success is shared but failure is not so yeah. once once there's failure if if um for instance uh a section of the of the drangheta folds for whatever reason has to they they just kind of disappear and without support they don't disappear without support it depends where are they based mm-hmm. uh, there will be local um so th- that's the thing that there are different stratifications so as a family in australia i would i will be involved with other families in australia of the ndrangheta so it's, mm-hmm. i'm not just the only one family in a you know in the continent so mm-hmm. there will be other australian drangheta families mm-hmm. but my business is primarily with my calabrian family mm-hmm. so when something goes wrong, then I will seek the support of my Australian mates mm. that could somehow um, support whatever needs to be supported in terms of immunity, legal assistance, whatever it is. So there is, you know, there are different areas, different departments where you could somehow appeal. And if you did something really wrong, and then it, it needs to be, you know, you can't be expelled in a way. Mm. You can be sort of like... Um, disempowered in a way Mm -hmm. so you know just get rid of every difficult connection in in different ways sometimes in a violent way Mm -hmm. some other times in a less violent way but i think there are different coordination structures at the local level and internationally and these are not the same these Mm -hmm. are not communicating so it's it's really it's the self-protection mechanism that ndrangheta has are outstandingly smart in that sense mm-hmm. also because if you are someone in a family and you do with you do deal drugs or you do purely criminal businesses there will also be a part of that family or the overall local area that doesn't do crime they do something else oh, they involve with politics they are involved mm-hmm. with the you know businesses entrepreneurs legal mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. and the two things will be apparently separate but then very porous, of course. Mm. But if something goes wrong at the criminal level, the upper level will re- well, will essentially just neglect it. Mm-hmm. It won't save you. There's just, you know, get out, get arrested, <laughs> who cares? Mm-hmm. So there is this, this self-protection mechanism at different levels of the Ndrangheta, which I think makes it so resilient. And I don't think it was uh, the idea of a particularly illuminated mind. It's just also an effect of how Calabrian migration works and mm-hmm. social mobility within the Calabrian families work. Mm-hmm. Also for the reason we were saying before about the families being particularly large. Yes. So it, it's really difficult to explain with, in abstract, but I think I hope that the book shows precisely this. That you know that there are so many complex levels um, to consider any time, both at the criminal level, at the human level, 
and not everything is what is so clear cut i think never ever that's yeah absolutely that's uh that, that comes through in the book uh yeah a lot that uh um yeah nothing is uh as as you expected and even when you start learning things uh things suddenly aren't uh <laughs> the the new the new normal isn't normal either yeah and uh um with uh um there's there's so much um talk of um tradition and customs in this book as well um and uh, uh many many of which i'd never heard of before um and uh, and and some of these customs can really link drangetha clans around the world and even like people outside of outside of um the clan who who aren't part of but still know about things for example you talk about um uh cafe pagato have i got yes. that right um <laughs> yes. in the beginning of the book and then when and, it pop- <laughs> and yes. then when it pops up again at the end of the book now you know, i learned what it was like it pops up at the end i suddenly so anxious for you yes um, can you can you uh, describe to us what this is and what yes. it means and also what emotions that brings up for you Yes, I think this was uh, an interesting thing to learn because I also learned it by mistake in a way. I learned it when, uh, when I, well, I learned what it was in, a, in my head um, when I was a child. Right. So my, usually my fa- I co- connect this to my father's village where mm. when I was growing up, the, what is uh, now the jailed mafia boss um who is also you know particularly well known in the village and in the region and everyone else everywhere mm. else actually um it was it was free and it was still around um and uh, he would would sit at the bar with other associates of him very normal looking person obviously nothing for a child to note and mm. notice but i knew um because my father was very adamant about it um that the moment i went to the bar to buy whatever anything from a lollipop to a to an ice cream mm. um i would have to insist on paying it for myself mm-hmm. and that is so the cafe pagato which means paid coffee is not just mm. about coffee it's mm. about anything so anything you consume at the bar Mm. And uh, th- there is this idea that among people from the same place or people who respect them, each other or people who are kind of like not meeting all the time and uh, they mm. stumble upon each other at the bar, there is a bit of a run for who pays first. Mm. And uh, because that's a sign, it- it's a bond. So mm. it, you, the person who pays shows respect paying for you mm-hmm. and you have to show gratitude for the person who pays, which right. also shows respect. So it's a double bond. Uh, but mm-hmm. obviously this wasn't explained to me, not even clear to me when I was a <laughs> child. All I knew is that I didn't have to accept for anyone else, no matter, unless it was really my aunt or my uncle, to pay for me at the bar. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult, of course, because you are a child and everyone knew my father. So, you know, this kind of, I didn't even know who was I supposed to avoid at right. that time. Right. It became clearer afterwards. Uh, but my idea is always do not accept people, especially people you don't know, mm. paying for you at the bar, even if for them it's a respect thing. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to have not even a gratitude debt over a coffee. With right, them. right. Or put even worse, my father in the position to have to thank someone for mm. even paying me the ice cream, which is oh yeah, to think about it. But you know that's the way. Because as a child, um, you're not necessarily going to have to go and pay that gratitude debt. Yeah. It's going to be your parents. It's yeah. going to be my father because yeah. they're going to pay for me because I'm the daughter of someone. Right. Um, and that was obviously the case uh, when the, this happened and it still happens <laughs> in the village. So my mm. surprise at the end of the book and the reason why I chose that event at the end of the book um, to finish mm-hmm. was precisely that because mm. I was um, in one of the villages I speak about in, um, in the Aspromonte. Mm-hmm. I hadn't gone there for ages, probably since my grandmother was dead. It wasn't my grand. Mm. It's not my grandmother's village. It's the village next door. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one is supposed to know me there and no one does know me there, but mm-hmm. uh, because they, at the bar, they asked me who I was because mm-hmm. that's what you do. No one goes in that village. Okay. Yeah. For any reason, <laughs> unless you have relatives there, Right. So they asked me. And obviously if it, it took me, it took them well, five minutes to figure out who was my grandmother, who was my <laughs> grandfather and the village next door and where was I coming from. The, the question that I, I say many times, who do you belong to? Yes. is very relational depending who is asking. Mm-hmm. So in that village, I'm my grandmother's and grandfather's granddaughter. They, they are the ones that they would know. And then because of that, I got the paid coffee. 
Mm. But because of the place I was and the things and the fact that I was writing this book and the fact that, you know, I was trying to reconnect with certain places and and it was completely unexpected. I was completely I wasn't expecting that <laughs> because it's, you know, it's not the kind of bar where you would assume is, is crowded all the time. No one goes there. So you would assume that they would want the pay you know, for you to pay for your own sure. thing. And it, it all happened so quickly with the guy saying, oh, it's paid for, and then leaving, which yeah. kind of left me, what the hell? And yeah. again, because of my name and my surname and uh, the village where this all happened and my own paranoia when it comes to this village, because mm-hmm. for various reasons, mm. it, it, it kind of was one of those moments like, oh, my God, it's still here. It's still in my yes. It's still in my life, even if, you know, now I, I can dissect it, I can prevent it, I can even insist. And I did try to insist. Yeah. To pay the stupid coffee and they didn't <laughs> let us. Mm. I was with my partner at the time and he was mm. com- he's from Tuscany, so he, he doesn't have the kind of um, behavior coded in his, in his mind. So right, he didn't right. understand what the fuck. Sorry, what the hell was happening? He <laughs> always a nice like, gesture. Why aren't we paying? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know why. Why aren't we paying? Because they know <laughs> who we are, who I am, and that's kind of like a, a strange bond or a strange thing where, on one side, they want to say, "Look, we are normal people. We are nice people. We offer yeah. you the coffee." And on mm-hmm. the other side, is a thing like you will always have to remember that we are nice people and we offered you the coffee. Yes, yes. It's a very, very subtle thing. Yeah. And so I, that's why I decided to finish off like that. But I think it's, uh, I never really re- under- realized how strange it was also to explain to others, mm-hmm. which is also something I do at the beginning of the book, because the first time that I had to explain it was with a colleague of mine who is from Czech Republic. Right. We went to one of these villages and we were with my father. So people recognized my father. Mm. We got the coffee paid. We don't know by whom. My father was very upset. Mm-hmm. We left the money anyway, which is something you shouldn't be doing anyway, because it's not polite. Mm-hmm. And my colleague there from Czech Republic was like, what the, what's that? <laughs> what's so going on here? <laughs> why all of this hustle for paying two euros for a coffee? <laughs> so it's, it's, there is a lot of uh, baggage on this coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really got that baggage from from your yeah. the the paranoia you describe it so so well. I felt like I felt like I was I you know I was uh, in some sort of anxiety danger as well. It was it was brilliantly written. Thank you. And yeah. so I think it was very again that was an example of ethnography because I brought it down as soon as I came back home that night. The yeah. epilogue also. I, 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 oh okay. I yeah. Want to be the epilogue. Yeah. If I hadn't finished the whole book yet. Yeah. <laughs> writing works apparently um during um during during a a lot of your time when you're when you're in um i I think especially when you're in australia you're talking about it the the um the many kidnappings of the 1970s and the 1980s uh, and you say about how there's a collective denial about this and i was just wondering why why there is a connect a collective denial does does it serve um people in some way uh, so that's an interesting question that I think uh, it, it emerged in my research also during that trip we made in 2015 with the Australian journalists mm. because they were researching the, a man who uh, had fl- well, left the village because he was suspected to have to be involved in a kidnapping and then he went to Australia to hide or just you know get rid of it of the suspicion. Uh, so they wanted to explore his role in the in one of the kidnappings of the village. And it was very strange because my, my father, um, who is also often the key to kind of me making the shift, the analytical shift, mm-hmm. he was like, okay, yes, we can go, we can film. But if they are asking something, we are not here to research the Ndrangheta today. We are here to talk about the kidnappings and uh, the period, you know, the past kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of makes you think, okay, if that's the past, because it is, you know, 80s, 90s, how comes that the moment they stop, we kind of forgotten about it? There is no memory kept uh, mm-hmm. apart from some specific victims. Um, some of the long-standing, long, you know, the longest kidnappings that lasted over two years and eight months. I mean, it's a long kidnapping. Yeah, definitely. We barely remember their names. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I do, or someone else, I'm sure they, they do, but the common perception of the kidnapping is it's over and done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bad, bad time. That's it. 
And there is, and then I started looking into it. And actually, now I'm, I'm building a research project on it, which because I think there is a lot more to unpack. So what I write in the book is basically my research hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I do think there is a collective denial of the same type that you can find in certain countries, conflict mm -hmm. countries, mm -hmm. where you don't particularly are able to, as a community, to acknowledge the violence and the trauma that the whole place went through, not just your own self, whether or not you had someone involved in the kidnappings or whether or not you saw something. Yes. But even in my own family, my grandmother, I discovered only very late in my life, she uh, offered support to two of the kidnappings. The kidnappings wow. Because they, she lived in, a, in her house, was at the end of the Aspromonte, well, one of the entrances of the Aspromonte village. So depending mm. on where they released the kidnapped vi victims, they would walk for miles and miles and miles until they found something. And mm. my, my grandmother was the first house that they would find coming from a certain place. So she would be the person that opened the door, saw this person, they didn't know who mm -hmm. there was, where they were coming from, usually gave them some food or some water and accompanied them to the police station. Mm -hmm. That's what she did, but she never right. talked about it. That's not something that you know was openly discussed. Mm -hmm. The kidnapping was something that were happening down there, 10 minutes down the road, but down there, and after they finished, it was kind of a relief. It's like, that's over. Now we don't have to, you know, we, we had the police, the carabinieri, uh, helicopter going in and out, the curfew at some point, mm -hmm. um, a special squad of the carabinieri in the woods all the time. Mm. But once they were over, that's it. And the reason for that may be many reasons, but in some cases it's because of shame. Mm -hmm. I think uh, some of the villages were heavily involved, not in a cruel way mm -hmm. in a very human way if you are a kidnapper and you have because for whatever reason you decided it's a good idea to kidnap people uh, for ransom and you are holding mm -hmm. someone hostage um, your mother might be thinking and I'm very sure of it because this is something I've heard with my own ears uh, might be thinking that it's, the, the best thing that she can do is to cook for that person mm -hmm. because that person the last thing you want is for that person to die and uh, everyone deserves yes, yes. a good you know food and something so mm -hmm. they might not endorse their son policy but because mm -hmm. it's still their son and they want to sort of you know protect even their son for some reason what is reasons mm -hmm. the best way to do so is to make sure that the kidnapped person is not you know kind of disregarded so cooking was mm -hmm. one of the things that many people did, many women did back in the days. Are they a, 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 are they accomplices? They, yes, they are, but don't know up to what extent their intent. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very difficult thing. Mm -hmm. But sure is that certain villages, more than others, were involved in this. Were involved in protecting the kidnappers because they were someone's son, someone's daughter, what well, daughter's husband, someone's cousin, someone's husband. And at the same time, they were involved with the practicalities of it. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of, I'll, I'll give you my car so that you don't have to use always the same car. If you use the same car, it might draw attention. So there was all the, the industry of the kidnappings revolved around the support wow. yeah. of normal people. And I think that's a massive shame mm -hmm. for everyone to admit. And it was never admitted. Mm -hmm. One of the villages today has decided, as in today, 2021, 2022, to open a museum of the kidnapping um, period as some sort of celebration. So, wow. so it's, it's a very difficult legacy, a very difficult collective memory to face. Yes. And it's not being faced. It's very contested, very contested. Mm -hmm. And when memory is contested, you can't overcome it. Mm -hmm. So one way is to deny it. Yeah, it's over and done. It's in the past. Who cares? Mm -hmm. Or the other way is like completely don't talk about it. It's not something we talk about. Yeah. As if it doesn't pertain to us. It's not our, it's, you know, something that happened to some random people here, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, a very strange thing to witness because it's such a massive part of the Ndrangheta history and sure. the Calabria history as well. Um, thank you so much, Anna. That's fascinating. And um, yeah, it's such a, it must be exhausting as well. Just, uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, having to... Um, yeah, that, that collection. Um, I've got one more question for you, if that's okay. Sure. Um, the uh, 
in in your book um you talk a lot uh, or you talk you talk many times about how there's a, there's the, uh, the divide that lies between a lot of things for example um between mafia culture and calabria culture um between mafiosos and philanthropists yes uh, and i was uh, it it did did have me thinking quite a few times through the book just that in some senses the mafia did bring pain brutality in another they brought order investment uh, and they reduced uncertainty um, what do you think we can learn from the drangheta, uh, drangheta and um, how long do you think their influence will last? So it depends which day you are asking me this question. <laughs> so we, just, <laughs> we just celebrated the 30 year of the death of Giovanni Falcone and his wife and uh, you know the, the prominent judge who was killed by the mafia in Sicily. And his one mm. of the most famous mottos was the mafia is a human phenomenon. And because it's a human phenomenon, it's going to end like every human phenomenon. Mm. And every, every time I look at the Ndrangheta through this lens, I, I kind of feel hopeful. It's like, hey, I probably knew best. Um, but then I look at the ways in which mafia evolved, especially the Ndrangheta, and I'm not sure I can share Giovanni mm. Falcone's and optimism or wishful thinking mm-hmm. for one reason. Uh, if, we, if there is anything we can learn, uh, and I hope this came out through the book, um, is that no one is ever black and white. No mm-hmm. one. All the Ndrangheta members, apart from the obvious one who, who killed or the obvious one who, you know, were clearly involved in uh, very evil things, not just criminal things, evil things, mm-hmm. like, you know, the kidnappings and hurting people and all of that. Mm-hmm. The majority of what we assume is the Ndrangheta is just a very complicated web of people who are having different roles at the same time. They are both fathers and mothers and children, and then they grew up and they become drug traffickers, but at the same time, they are also still fathers, and then they become entrepreneurs, and then at the same time, they might enter in politics, or they might still be you know, involved in their own family's business. So they, they, everyone is always more than one thing. Right. So that's right. why it's so complicated. And that's why, yes, probably the Ndrangheta power is going to fade away in the same way as the Sicilian mafia power has been severely affected by the action of the state also because of the murders of our prominent judges. Right. Um, but that's the criminal power. So that the criminal power, it's easier in a way to mm-hmm. stop the rest. Uh, which is the the web of um, unethical behaviors, the web of privileges, the web of ethnic enclaves and ethnic entrepreneurialism and ethnic connections, Mm. which is so prominent with the Calabrian mafiosi abroad. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's, um, that's so easy disentangled. The the silver lightning here is intergenerational changes. Mm -hmm. Obviously the more the mafia goes away, from its place of origin, uh, the more it's gonna change because four generations Calabrian families are not first generation Calabrian families. So you can assume that long-term there will be intergenerational changes Mm. even in these Calabrian dynasties that are, you know, it takes longer than other um, (laughs) migration groups in certain cases, but it will happen. It's already happening for Mm -hmm. the abroad situation. For the Calabrian situation, things are a lot more complicated because it's not all about the agency and the capacity of the mafia members. It's about the system that doesn't work around them. Mm-hmm. It's too easy to, to, to be, I wouldn't say illegal, but to be on the gray zone uh, and to kind of like exploit um, all the different ways in which society doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it is a failure of the state. It's not, I mean, it's a failure of politics. It's the failure of... Uh, uh, you know, the economy and the control we have on the economy. So right. there's always going to be someone who's going to um, take the opportunity, the criminal opportunity, whether that's called Nrangheta, we'll see. But we are still debating here after 30 years of the death from of Giovanni Falcone and not just him, uh, we're still debating about the true nature of Cosa Nostra and the Sicilian mafia, even if they've been severely maimed, mm-hmm. they haven't disappeared. Um, so it's 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 gonna take a long time. I'm not sure it's gonna be my lifetime, <laughs> but yeah, it's probably gonna go down uh, in terms of peaking interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but at the same time, it it's about migration. It's about the yes. inner working of ethnicity and crime, which is a very difficult topic. Um, mm -hmm. And then in Calabria, it is very much about the inequalities uh, of the place where they live in. Calabria is still a very unequal place. Yeah. Within inequality, yeah, there will be harm and there will be crime. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you, thank you so much, Anna, for for coming on the podcast today and talking to me. Um, this you. has been a this has been such a such a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I've I loved reading your book. Um, thank you for giving I'm, me the platform. Uh, oh, of course, I'm excited for everybody else to get their hands on your book. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, is there uh, anywhere online that people can find you that uh, you want to direct people to? I'm uh, mostly on Twitter with my name and surname, Anna Sergi at Anna Sergi. Uh, but yeah, I'm too social anyway. So yeah, Twitter <laughs> is probably where I would start. LinkedIn as well, but mostly okay. I think Twitter is my preferred working Excellent. platform. Yes. Grant. Uh, thank you, Anna. Chasing the Mafia, Drangheta Memories and Journeys by Anna Sergi is published by Bristol University Press. You can find out more both about the book and about Anna by going to bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.